Hey folks, I'm Chris. Hey, and I'm James. Did you know that the state of Delaware has had only one serial killer since its creation? Did you know that the state of Arizona has one of the best cases of alien abduction on record? Did you also know that famed untouchable Elliot Ness was thwarted by the Cleveland Torso murderer? What in the world? That sounds absolutely terrifying. Are you ready for a road trip? If so, please join James and I each episode as we discuss all this and more on State of Fear Podcast. Ride shotgun on our dark and wonderful ride down America's byways and highways as we unravel the strange and macabre in your state. State of Fear, where the things that go bump in the night are in your backyard. My darlings, I was just having a nice read of the obituaries in the local paper. Guess who's pushing up daisies this week? Esther Wilmsburg. She owned that pet store in town. Can you believe she wouldn't let me in there with dear Reggie? And he was on a lead. Maybe I'll pop round to their house tonight and offer her husband a nice apple pie. She was always so jealous. Thought he was giving me the eye. Well, you can't blame the man. He's only human after all. (laughs) On to the first story. This is something very strange that happened to a very famous actor called Telly Savalas. Me and Telly go way back to the 70s. (laughs) I remember when he was on that TV show Kojak and well, I used to watch it. Telly Savalas was a much-loved actor starring in movies and TV shows through the 60s, 70s and 80s, such as the lollipop-sucking cop Kojak, and also alongside Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in the Chiller Horror Express. He has always been a cynic of the supernatural, until one dark night when he was stranded alone and in need of help. The story that follows is a true account of what happened that fateful night. It was one evening around 1958-1959, he just left off of a date with a beautiful young girl. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning and he was going home to Long Island after dropping her home. As he was driving along, the car began to slow and to his annoyance he realised he had run out of gas. Pulling over to the side of the road, stranded and alone, he had no choice but to try and find help. Walking through the dark, lonely night, eventually he came to a white castle. Entering the restaurant, he asked if there was a gas station open nearby. The manager tells him, yes, there is. If you walk through the woods out the back, get onto the Grand Central Parkway, that will take you to the Cross Island Parkway, and there was a gas station there, open all night. Telly thanked him and started walking through the wooded area. With no other choice, Moving deeper into the dense woods, twigs snapping under his feet, he suddenly stopped dead in his tracks as a voice appeared from behind him. I'll give you a ride. Telly turned around, and from out of nowhere, an eerie-looking man sitting in a Cadillac had silently pulled over to the road behind him. 
Tilly didn't hear the Cadillac approaching. It was just there, as if it had come out of thin air. The man the voice belonged to was wearing a full white suit. His voice high-pitched, almost feminine. Telly said, That's very nice of you, uh, I need to get to a gas station. The man in the white suit nodded, gestured for him to get in. Telly did, and the pair drove off into the night. Their conversation was normal, friendly, and eventually they reached the gas station. Telly started to fumble around in his pockets, and to his dismay, they were empty. Embarrassed, not knowing what to say, the man in white answered his problem in the same strange voice. I'll give you a dollar. The truth was, at the time, Telly was broke. With no other option but to take the strange man's hospitality again, he agreed, but with one stipulation, that the man gave him his name and address so he could mail the borrowed dollar back to him. The man in white nodded, and Telly took the money, went to the gas station, and bought a can of gas. They drove back to Telly's car, and the man in white graciously helped him pour the gas in. Then out of the blue, the man in white says the name of a famous baseball player. Who? Telly asked. The man in white replied in the spookiest voice Telly had ever heard. The utility infielder for the Boston Red Sox. Oh, said Telly awkwardly, not knowing what this had to do with anything. The man in white helped Telly push his car to get it started, and Telly thanked him for his help. Was the man in white just a friendly passerby, helping someone in need, or was there more to the experience? There was no incident with the man, just an odd feeling that something wasn't right. Telly got home safely. He woke up the next morning, thinking of his experience the night before with the man in white. Then he saw the headline of that day's journal American. On it was the name of the baseball player that Telly wasn't familiar with, and the headline read, He was dead. It was the exact name he had mentioned in that spooky voice. He died aged 27 under mysterious circumstances. Telly was baffled by the frightening coincidence and shared his story with his mother, then remembered that the man in white had given him a piece of paper with his address on so he could send the borrowed dollar back to him. Searching his pockets, he found the address. Beside it was a telephone number. Telly ran to the phone and called the number. A voice answered and said, Jimmy's bar. Can I, uh, can I speak to Mr. Cullen, please? Oh? Mr. Cullen. Hold on a second. Then after a moment, a woman answered. Who's calling? Hi, uh, may I speak to Mr. Carlin, please? He's not here. Well, uh, when do you expect him? Who is this? Well, I was uh, with Mr. Collins last night and he gave me his telephone number and he said I can reach him here. The phone went quiet. Silence grew from the other end. Look, you son of a bitch. I don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about my husband and he's been dead for two years. The woman slammed down the phone and wouldn't answer any more of his calls. Telly wouldn't let it go. Eventually, he did gain contact with the woman again. He agreed to meet her in New York 
and she came down from Boston. Upon meeting, Telly described the clothes the man was wearing, the full white suit. The woman gasped. They were the clothes her dead husband was buried in. Telly showed her the piece of paper the man in white gave him, signed James Cullen. The woman brought a letter that her late husband wrote to her when he was in the army. It was signed Jimmy, and the signature was identical. Telly told her that the man in white had a high voice, and she said, No, no, he had a deep voice like yours. Then, after a moment's thought, she told him that he had killed himself by shooting himself through his throat, straight through the voice box. This isn't where the story ended though. Years later, on November 22nd, 1963, he was playing golf with two friends in California, Dennis James and Merrill Heater, as they approached the tee on the seventh hole. From far away, Telly heard the distinct voice of a figure standing on top of a hill. A figure, all dressed in white. Telly recognised him from that eerie night, started shaking as the voice was all too familiar. Did you hear what happened in Dallas? Telly asked Dennis, Did you hear that? What he said? Dennis turned around. Yeah. Talking amongst themselves about the odd apparition, they failed to notice that the man in white had disappeared. Cautiously, they carried on playing the holes, and eventually they made it to the clubhouse for lunch. The TV was on, and then the news broke. John F. Kennedy has been shot in Dallas, Texas. An hour and a half before the bulletin broke on CBS, at exactly the same time as the president was shot, Telly had heard the odd high-pitched voice of the man in white. Did you hear what happened in Dallas? Oh, who could that be this time of night? Oh, hold on. I do apologize. That was dear old little Mabel from across the street. She's lived on this road all her life. 88 years old. She was just dropping off a casserole. I should have known it was her by her knock. She's a dear old thing, but muscles of steel. Such a shame she can't cook for shit. Now, what stories do we have next? Ah, here we go. I'm Peter Halpin, and this is my story. The great musician Louis Armstrong once wrote, Music is life itself. He wrote that in a letter to a fan of his who was in the military, serving in Vietnam at the time, in 1967. Whether that fan survived the war and made it back home to listen to Mr Armstrong's fantastic, famous music, I don't know. Maybe the words in the letter spurred him on and helped him survive, and maybe those words resonated with him for the rest of his days, a reminder of coming away from possible death and able to live on with music in his heart and ears. 
35 years later, in a quaint middle-class Bedfordshire village in the UK, a far cry from a Vietnamese war zone, I took on the third of three part-time jobs. I was not long out of university with a degree in marketing that I had no intention of using, another story that I won't go into right now, although I did actually use it in the end. And I was looking to build up a pot of money to fund the studying and training that I really wanted to do. I'd also, reluctantly, moved back in with my parents for the short term to save on rent. I already had a regular job at the local Budgeons store, working the deli counter, fresh produce aisle and doing home deliveries, and a few evening shifts at a pub in the village. And it was there I met the owners who would be my next employers, and nearly bring my life to an end shortly before my 23rd birthday. I can't remember their names now, but I can recall their faces very clearly. They were a married couple who lived barely a one-minute walk from the pub and would frequent it most Friday and Saturday nights. It was a very popular and sociable venue where the village really got together and met each other. Social media wasn't around in 2002. It'd be almost another full year before MySpace appeared on the scene, paving the way for everything that we have now that means people in pubs spend more time chatting to people elsewhere in the world than getting to know the other people in the same room. As barman, I didn't have much choice about chatting to the customers anyway, and so I got to know this couple over time. One evening, after they'd learned of my need for work and saving up money, they made me a proposition. They were about to set up their own taxi firm business and wondered if I'd like to be a part-time driver. There were no local companies, and people in the pub who wanted to go into town after a few drinks would often complain how they needed to call a taxi from miles away, which pretty much doubled the fare it should be. So it was a viable business idea, and I'd always enjoyed driving, plus it would be extra money for the pot. So yes, I was in. My first shift was on a Thursday evening. I think I did one job, a quick trip from the village a few miles to another sleepy village. Very easy. I was paid by the hour for the shift and was just sat at home with my mum and dad and my Nokia 3310 on standby awaiting a text. It only did calls, texts, alarms and snake. So it was a nice start. My next shift was Saturday night. I'd expected that to be the polar opposite, that it had been non-stop. But after about two hours, at 7pm, I was still sat on the sofa watching inane Saturday night TV, which is how I remember it was definitely a Saturday, and I'd only been in the taxi to drive it from HQ, the owner's house five minutes walk up the road, to my parents' bungalow. I had an 8pm pickup from a village about a 20-minute drive away, so it looked like I'd not have anything to do before that. Then I got a text. A local pickup to go to a place called Houghton Regis, most of the way to Luton. It was a half an hour drive there, and 40 minutes from there to the village I needed to be at in an hour. I questioned if that was a good idea, as I'd surely be late for the 8pm pickup, and being late for booked jobs is a sure way to lose that customer next time. The owners insisted I'd make it no problem to just get on with it. I remember they were quite put out that the new boy was questioning them and were quite blunt about the fact I'd not done anything yet and needed to earn my money. So off I went in the Citroen Saloon, a smart, nearly new car. 
I can't remember the model, but it was Citroen's answer to the Ford Mondeo, if that means anything to you. I'd popped a few of my favourite tapes in there to play when I didn't have any passengers. Yes, tapes. I put on a compilation tape that night, a mix of hits from the 60s and 70s. Because I was never cool, okay? Anyway, a friendly couple, who tipped quite generously as I recall, were safely and happily delivered to Houghton Regis. It was just after 7.30, so there was no way I'd be on time for the 8 o'clock. I called the owners to ask if another car could do that one. No, you'll be fine, just get there as quick as you can. As quick as you can. I remember those words, because they changed everything. If they'd said, don't worry, we'll give them a call and say you'll be there at ten past, take your time, don't rush. What happened wouldn't have. But, get there as quick as I could, I tried. I turned up the stereo volume and drove on my way. It had been raining most of the day and had just stopped, so I was happy to not have to put up with that anymore. I can still see the wet, dark roads in my mind's eye as I zipped along the dual carriageways before turning off into the country roads towards the pickup address. I texted as I drove, because it wasn't illegal back then, and it hadn't occurred to me that it'd be dangerous to say that I'd definitely be late. They replied to tell me to do my best and get their ASAP. I sped up a little, constantly looking over at the little green analogue clock on the central column, just above the cassette player. It was just before eight o'clock, and I'd started to think about what I'd say to the customer when I got there. Would they be understanding and okay about it? Would they be really cross and then I'd have an awkward journey with them and no tip? I was only a few miles away at that point. I knew the route but didn't know the roads that well to drive on. It wasn't a place I'd been to very often since returning from uni. I'd started to sing along with the music, Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las. I put my foot down a bit more on the accelerator in time with the engine revs in the song. I glanced at the clock again. Yep, still going to be late. I looked back up, and about a hundred feet away, a sharp left-hand bend appeared in my headlights from the pitch-black country back roads. I put my foot on the brake, and the car slid. And slid. Not slowing. The steering wheel did nothing. I was aquaplaning at 55 miles per hour. Straight in front of the whizzing, uncontrollable Citroen saloon was a road sign. A big one, with black and white chevrons warning of the bend. I tensed as I prepared to smash into it. But the car glided over it like a hot iron over a thin, soft cotton handkerchief, flattening it with little more than a bump. And it revealed the tree. A huge, great big thick oak tree, as wide as the car, dead ahead of me, as I maintained a speed above 50 miles per hour, skating, shooting like an arrow through the night. This was it. A headlong smash into this tree, imminent. I wanted to keep my eyes open. I didn't want to die afraid. I wanted to face it, see it to the end. And I remember my thought, word for word, was, well, that's me then. 
and as the Shangri-La sang out. As he drove away on that rainy night, I begged him to go slow. Whether he heard, I'll never know. Look out, look out, look out! My eyes instinctively shut as I could see the pattern in the bark on the oak. Then an almighty smash! I opened my eyes. Was this afterlife? How am I not even in pain? Why am I leant so far forward facing the footwell and my feet? After a few seconds of taking in the fact I wasn't dead, I saw the steam, the windscreen in a hundred thousand shards but still in place, and I heard the silence. The music had stopped. The driver's door was buckled and wouldn't open. The same for the passenger door. I took off my seatbelt and climbed into the back, climbing almost vertically, which I couldn't understand. I was able to force one of the back doors open after several shoves and clambered out. I walked clear of the car to see it pointing, boot first to the starry skies. The red rear lights were the only light for miles around the headlights still on but buried in turf and mud. Deep down in what I could then see was a ditch immediately in front of the tree. The bonnet was crumpled against its roots. My injuries? Nothing more than a bruise on my collarbone, where the seatbelt caught my then 13 stone weight at 50 miles an hour. The timing of those lyrics was spectacular, but it was almost as though the song itself was speaking to me. As he drove away on that rainy night, I begged him to go slow. Whether he heard, I'll never know. Look out, look out, look out! I can't hear it now without getting a shiver and a chill right through me. It makes me nearly cry. I thought that song would be the last I'd ever hear but I can now play it and remember and be grateful for that ditch. Music is life itself, Louis Armstrong wrote three years after Leader of the Pack was released. And this music represents life itself for me. Oh, and if a taxi driver ever picks you up a few minutes late, bear in mind they may not have got you at all if they'd been forced to hurry to be on time. So, Peter really did have a lucky escape. This is why I don't care to drive anymore. There's way too many stupid assholes on the road nowadays. Road rage is not my color. Don't forget, darlings, do send in your strange stories and encounters. I'm on all social media. So, let's read out some more of your reviews, darlings. The first one I have here is by Jackanori789, whatever that means. He says, really well made podcast. Right, well, he could have said more, Jackanori, but uh, but thank you for the review, nevertheless. 
The next one is from Mark Batch. He said, love the vibe and soundtrack. Look forward to hearing more. Well, thank you, Mark. And the third one is from Spooky Seeker. And they say, absolutely enjoyed this podcast executed with such a fun spirit. The stories definitely convinced me. I've had a similar experience at an old house I used to live at, and I knew what was coming when she said she saw her brother in the living room and it definitely wasn't them playing games spooky very spooky i'm looking forward to more of these fun yet tense stories highly recommended anyone to listen well thank you very much spooky seeker in fact if you have a scary story don't waste it on these reviews send it in thank you everyone it's so much appreciated keep them coming And kittens, don't forget, I'm waiting for your creepy, strange, but true stories. And if you'd like them read out on the show, then do send them in to my email address, which is deadlydebbie at mail.com. So, until next time, kitties of the night, don't let the bedbugs bite. (laughs) 